Jonathan Edwards, uh, the 18th century pastor, preacher, and revivalist, is responsible for compiling the most impressive and perhaps beneficial list of resolutions that I have ever seen. In all, Edwards compiled the list of approximately 70 resolutions over a period of two years. They demonstrate a man familiar with the state of his soul, his own failures and shortcomings, life in general, and the things that pleased God. The general aim of all of his resolutions is to conform his lifestyle into a pattern that yields him the greatest possible satisfaction and gives God the greatest amount of glory. For example, let me read you some of his resolutions. Resolved that I will do whatever I think to be most to God's glory and my own good profit and pleasure in the whole of my duration without any consideration of the time, whether now or never so myriads of ages hence. Resolved to do whatever I think to be my duty and most for the good and advantage of mankind in general. Resolved to do this. Whatever difficulties I meet with, how many and how great soever. Now, Edwards was fluent in King James, and I know many of us are not. So if you weren't able to follow that, let me summarize it for you. He's resolving to do whatever he perceives to be to the greatest possible glory for God, of the highest benefit and enjoyment to himself, and of the highest benefit to all humanity. Whenever he meets with the opportunity to do such things, no matter what may stand in his way. The next one is a little more self-explanatory. Resolved. To live with all my might while I do live. And here's another, one more. Resolved. To act in all respects, both speaking and doing, as if nobody had been so vile as I, and as if I had committed the same sins, or had the same infirmities or failings as others, and that I will let the knowledge of their failings promote nothing but shame in myself, and prove only an occasion for my confessing my own sins and misery to God. In that resolution, Edwards is determined never to speak or act towards anyone as if they were a worse sinner than he. When he is made aware of the sins of others, he's going to let that circumstance motivate him to confess his own sins to God, rather than using it to elevate himself. Now, Edwards began this list all of those resolutions, in fact, that I just read, uh, when he was 17 years old. But what I find most impressive about this list is not his age or even the resolutions that he makes. What I find most impressive is his preamble. Listen to what he says. Being sensible that I am unable to do anything without God's help, I do humbly entreat him by his grace to enable me to keep these resolutions so far as they are agreeable to his will, for Christ's sake. Now, anyone who has made New Year's resolutions, or any resolution for that matter, knows how difficult they are to keep. Last year, according to statistics compiled by the Opinion Corporation in Princeton, New Jersey, 45% of people in the United States made resolutions. The sad thing is, only 75% of those people were still sticking to their resolution one week into them. By June, okay, six months later, only 45% of the people that had made resolutions were still sticking with them. That's not a very stunning success rate. Now, resolutions aren't bad. 
Generally, their focus is on self-improvement, and that is a noble pursuit. Even when the result is, and it often is, failure. They demonstrate an innate dissatisfaction with the way things are, a recognition that things could and should be better, and a desire, however weak or strong, that things need to change for the better. For the Christian, this is often expressed in the nebulous desire to grow spiritually. Or maybe to put it in more concrete terms, it's the same aim that Jonathan Edwards had in his resolutions. To conform our lifestyle into a pattern that yields the greatest possible satisfaction for us and gives God the greatest possible glory. Theologically speaking, it means to be progressively sanctified. What impresses me most about Edwards is his recognition, even as a 17-year-old, that when it comes to spiritual growth, no amount of willpower is going to affect any change whatsoever. If we are going to conform our lifestyle into a pattern that truly yields the greatest possible satisfaction for us and gives God the greatest possible glory, then God is the one who has to change us. The words of Jonathan Edwards echo the sentiment of a passage of Scripture written 2,000 years before his time, more than 2,000 years before his time. Turn with me to Psalm 119, verse 33. While you're turning there, let me give you some background on our passage. Psalm 119 is the longest chapter in the Bible. It it contains uh, 22 stanzas of eight verses each. And based on some of the words that the writer uses, it was probably written sometime after the return from the Babylonian exile. The psalm is memorable for two reasons. For one thing, it's the most comprehensive celebration of the Word of God in all of Scripture. And number two, the psalmist's form for this psalm is very unique. He uses a a form very deliberately. Uh, It's called an acrostic poem. The way it works is the first uh, letter of the first word in each stanza, uh, the first stanza begins with the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet. In the second stanza, the first word begins with the second letter of the Hebrew alphabet, and so on. Uh, Hence, you have 22 stanzas for 22 Hebrew letters. Typically, acrostic poems only used one line for each letter. But this psalmist devotes eight lines to each letter, and each line starts, begins with the letter that each particular section is devoted to. Verse 33 begins the fifth stanza of Psalm 119, the one dedicated to the Hebrew letter, Hey. Uh, For you Sesame Street fans out there, this morning's sermon is brought to you by the letter Hey. I knew I wasn't the only one. Uh, Let's read together. Psalm 119, verses 33 to 40. Teach me, O Lord, to follow your decrees, then I will keep them to the end. Give me understanding, and I will keep your law, and obey it with all my heart. Direct me in the path of your commands, for there I find delight. Turn my heart toward your statutes, and not toward selfish gain. Turn my eyes away from worthless things. Preserve my life according to your word. Fulfill your promise to your servant so that you may be feared. Take away the disgrace I dread, for your laws are good. How I long for your precepts. Preserve my life in your righteousness. 
Now, the, the spirit of this psalm reads to me almost exactly like the spirit of Edward's preamble. The psalmist's earnest desire is to live a life that accords with the moral will of God as it's revealed in His Word. This passage of Scripture is the psalmist's prayer to God for spiritual growth. What I want us to see this morning is the prayer of this psalmist teaches us two things. First, the benefit of spiritual growth and the nature of it. Uh, let's begin with the, with the benefit of spiritual growth. So I'm going to begin my exposition of this psalm at the end of it. And then for the rest of it, we'll come back to the beginning. Let's read verses 39 and 40 again. Take away the disgrace I dread, for your laws are good. How I long for your precepts. Preserve my life in your righteousness. The one thing that the psalmist wants more than anything else is life. And he's not talking about a quantity of life. He's not asking for God to give him long life. He's not sick and dying and asking for God to give him a few more years. He's asking for a particular quality of life. Because there's a way to live that is fully satisfying to us and fully honoring to God. A life that is lived in accordance to God's moral will. His dread is a life characterized by disgrace. He doesn't want the choices that he makes to bring shame upon him from God or his peers. Okay, He doesn't want his face in the tabloids or on cops. Now, for many of you, that may seem like an easy thing to avoid. It's fairly easy to stay off of cops, isn't it? But I suspect that the majority of the people who end up there in the tabloids or on cops would tell you that it's not as easy as you might think. Most of the faces that you see in the papers or on cops belong to people who made choices the same way that you and I do. They went went looking for satisfaction in the wrong places and they, surprise, didn't find it. That's what Tiger Woods was looking for. That's what Britney Spears and Lindsay Lohan are looking for. That's what I'm looking for every time I do something that I regret. I'm looking for satisfaction in something where where it can't be found. It's the lifestyle toward which we are naturally inclined and it's the way that we would live if God left us to ourselves. It's a lifestyle that the psalmist is warning us will lead us into disgrace. His desire is a life lived by God's precepts, characterized by God's precepts. Paul calls this the life that is truly life in 1 Timothy 4.16. A life defined by the law of God which originates in His absolute righteousness. The law of God here that the psalmist is talking about refers to God's revelation of Himself in His Word. The psalmist knows that God through His Word was showing His people how they should live. In fact, He was showing them the only way that they could truly live. He wants a life in which God is glorified and He is truly satisfied. That life is found only through God's precepts. The life exemplified for us by Jesus Christ. It's a life of humility, love, courage, compassion, wisdom, integrity, generosity, holiness. A life that values what is truly valuable and is always looking to the good of others. That's the reason that the psalmist gives us for his prayer. So let's turn our attention to what the psalmist prayed for. 
His desire is life in God's way, and the means by which he seeks to obtain it is spiritual growth or sanctification. His requests, I believe, give us a summary of the nature of spiritual growth. But first, let me make some general observations. Number one, the attitude of the prayer is one of dependence and humility. The psalmist knows that he has no ability within himself to live according to God's moral law. In fact, we've all seen what happens when people try to do this on their own. They're all over the Gospels. And we see them most often directly opposed to Jesus. They're called Pharisees. Pharisees looked like they had it all together. They went the extra mile when it came to living by the book. They set up rules to keep themselves from breaking rules. But the problem with the Pharisees was that they spent so much time making sure that they followed the rules that they forgot the character of the God behind them. They were so consumed by rule-keeping and legalism that when Jesus asked them in Luke 14.2, is it lawful to heal a man on the Sabbath? They can't answer Him. And then they get mad at Him when He does it. True spiritual growth is not something that you can fake or force by following a checklist of rules. That's what the Pharisees did. And Jesus told the crowds in Matthew 5.20, I tell you, that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. The reason we like rules is that they require no transformation. I don't need God to follow rules. Now, as a child and teenager, I thought that spiritual growth was measured by how well you kept a certain list of rules. You know, you probably know the list of ta- that I'm talking about. You probably have one yourself. Don't drink, don't smoke, don't lie, don't steal, don't slow dance, don't curse, and don't forget to read your Bible. The problem with that view is that spiritual growth is not measured by the things that you do or don't do. By God's standard, spiritual growth is measured by the transformation of your heart. Micah 6.8 is a nice short summary of the life that pleases God. He says, He has showed you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. Now let me tell you, it's a lot easier for me not to curse than it is for me to act justly. It's a lot easier for me to avoid smoking than it is for me to love mercy. And walking humbly with my God? That's probably the most obvious one, and yet it's the one that I find the most difficult. Following the letter of the law requires willpower. And for the most part, we can do that. Living in such a way that fulfills the spirit of the law requires a transformation of our nature. We don't naturally love mercy unless it's being shown to us. We don't naturally act justly or walk humbly with our God. And these are things you can't simply pay lip service to. Which is why this man's prayer is framed the way that it is. Understand this. We are completely helpless when it comes to producing the kind of change that God wants to produce in us. It's impossible for us. We can't do it. The psalmist asks God to change him because he's the only one who can. Teach me, he says. Give me understanding. Direct me. 
Turn my heart toward Your statutes. Turn my eyes away from worthless things. Fulfill Your promise. God is the only one who can produce this change in us. And we must have this attitude of humility and dependence if we're going to grow at all. Observation number two, God changes us through His Word. The whole of Psalm 119 is a celebration of God's Word and this passage is no different. It shares that theme. One of the most recognizable characteristics of the psalm is the abundance of synonyms that the author uses for God's Word. In this passage alone, there are at least seven of them. He calls them decrees, law, commands, statutes, word, promise, and precepts. Every verse has at least one reference to God's Word. God's Word is His revelation of Himself. It tells you who He is, what He is like, and how you should respond to Him. Through God's spoken Word, the universe and all life in it came to be. Through His incarnate Word, Jesus Christ, He secured our redemption. And through His written Word, what the psalmist is celebrating in Psalm 119, He breathes life back into our deadened souls and conforms us to the image of His Son, Jesus Christ. The author knows that it is through God's Word that God will change him by His grace. Now for the remainder of our time, we'll examine how God's Word sanctifies us. First, God's Word helps us to know God's will. God's Word helps us to know God's will. The cry of the psalmist in verses 33 and 34 is, Teach me and give me understanding so that he can keep God's law. He does not depend on his own intelligence or his own understanding to keep God's law. Most likely he has already seen that fail him. As the old adage states, he who teaches himself has a fool for his master. There's a great deal of wisdom in this plea. After all, who better to help you understand a book than the person who wrote it? True understanding of God's Word can only be imparted by God Himself. I probably shouldn't say that since I'm teaching a class on how to read your Bible, but I can't teach you how to understand God's Word. Only God can do that. What I believe the psalmist is seeking here is not merely a knowledge of God's commands, but the Spirit behind them. He wants to know the character of of the God whose righteousness forms the essence of His ethic. In other words, He wants to know what pleases God, what His moral will is, so that the life He lives in obedience to Him is not merely legalistic duty on His part, but a sacrifice of praise to His Master. The work of God through His Word to renew our minds will result in two things that I see here. Perseverance and devotion. Those who are truly transformed by God's word will persevere in their obedience until we are glorified. Charles Spurgeon said, Mere human wit and will have no such enduring influence. There is an end to all perfection of the flesh. But there is no end to heavenly grace except its own end, which is the perfecting of holiness in the fear of the Lord. Until our holiness is achieved, the grace of God will continue to work in us. And the second result is devotion. Understanding the character of the God behind this, this word cannot lead to any other conclusion. There, there is no greater being. There is no one else more worthy of your, your devotion. 
There's no life more living than the one that He prescribes. The psalmist has caught a glimpse of that, leading to this celebration of God's Word and his devotion to God and his enthusiasm for living life in His way. It's, it's like a peanut M&M. You know, once you've tasted one, you want the whole bag. Secondly, God's Word helps us to follow God's will. God's Word helps us to follow God's will. Whatever consumes our minds influences our actions. That's the principle here. So a mind that is renewed and transformed to love God sees the value of living life His way. Verse 35 uses the image of a person walking down a path as a metaphor for living life and making choices. There are many, many paths to choose from. But the only one that the psalmist wants to walk is the one that corresponds with God's character and His way. The plea of the author is for God to show him the path to take. To show him which way to go. Which way accords with your moral will when I come to life's crossroads and hazards. The reason for this plea, I believe, is that the psalmist knows that his feelings will wane and his mind will wander. At times his devotion to God and his way will be overshadowed by something else that may lure him astray. And these things are not always things that we might expect would distract us from God. They might be pressure at work or a family crisis or a season of doubt or struggle. Things that that come in and grab your attention rather than simply jostling for it. I think it's for those moments that the psalmist pleads with God to keep him on the right path. When all around us is dark, this same psalmist says of God's Word, Your Word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. And the speed that he's walking this path is not the issue here. Sometimes you will run it. Sometimes you'll walk it. Sometimes you'll expend all of your energy just crawling along it. And sometimes the best that you can do is merely keep your feet on the path as life pummels you mercilessly. In those moments, when we're tempted to go back to the easy roads, That's when we need God's Word to direct us most. Third, God's Word helps us to love God's will. God's Word helps us to love God's will. Verse 36 is another indication that the psalmist has accurate understanding of his nature. His heart is corrupt and it seeks satisfaction everywhere but where it can be found in God. So he asks God to teach him to love his will to see the satisfaction that is found there so that his heart will not lead his feet astray. See, we may know what is good and what is right, but if our heart isn't sold on it, our feet are going to follow our heart. Our affections often speak louder than our thoughts. And many times they motivate us to do things that we'll look back on and kind of scratch our heads and say, what was I thinking? Blaise Pascal, a French philosopher, is probably most famous for his observation that all people choose to do that which they believe will make them the happiest. Every choice that we make is a means to to that end. We'll even do things that we uh, don't like, things that that temporarily make us unhappy for the sake of greater happiness afterwards. For example, I used to clean my room when my mom told me to. 
I just ended that sentence on a preposition because just thinking about cleaning my room makes me babble incoherently. It made me absolutely miserable and I hated it and I complained about it loudly. But I knew that if my dad came home and my room was not cleaned, then the state of my misery was going to increase in direct proportion to the length of his day and the degree to which I had exasperated my mother. So I would endure the agony and the hardship and the suffering of cleaning my room to avoid the agony, hardship and suffering that would be unleashed upon my bottom if my room was not clean. In the long run, I was happier. I wonder how many of us in this room view living within God's moral will like cleaning our room. Is it something that we just endure because in the long run you will be happier? Do you find solace only in the fact that glory lies ahead? In the meantime, we endure? Now, there may be an element of faith there. God has promised us good, therefore good will come. But it's incomplete. God has promised us good and good will come, but His way is also good. It's better, in fact, than any other way that you could possibly live. This is the emphasis of the psalmist's plea in this verse. God, make me love your way, so I'm not just enduring it. Incline my heart to it. Make me to see its blessing and feel its satisfaction, even as I walk in your commands. A mind that knows the will of God and a heart that loves the will of God ensure feet that will follow the will of God. Fourth, his word helps us to see what is valuable. His word helps us to see what is valuable. This is verse 37. Wandering eyes make a wandering heart, and a wandering heart makes wandering feet. So this request goes hand in hand with the previous one. There is a war raging for your affections and your loyalties. Nike wants them. Mac and Microsoft want them. Sports teams want them. Television wants them. Friends want them. Your spouse and your children want them. Cheesesteaks and double fudge cake want them. Political parties want them. Your boss wants them. Hollywood wants them. Video games want them. Facebook wants them. Money. Oh, money definitely wants them. Everywhere you turn, this world is clamoring for your attention. Find happiness here. You gratify your desires over here. Special. Satisfaction. Guaranteed. It's guaranteed. There's so much stuff out there. This world is so easy to get lost in. And these days, men and women are selling their integrity dirt cheap. Why? Because we confuse something's ability to temporarily gratify a desire with eternal value. God made, God made us physical beings and placed us in a physical world so that we could interact with and enjoy His creation. It's good to enjoy a cheeseburger or to go to a baseball game on a beautiful summer afternoon, especially if Cliff Lee is pitching. It's good to enjoy a physical relationship with your spouse or to work hard to provide for your family. You should enjoy those things. God made you to do that. Enjoy them with gusto. 
But your highest affections were created for Him and Him alone. He alone will satisfy your deepest longings. He alone will make you truly happy. He alone is to be worshipped. If we attach those affections to anything else, we are lost in idolatry. And destruction and disappointment are the only ends to that road. To follow God's way, we must see Him as supremely valuable and everything else as secondary because whatever your heart is fixed on, your life will pursue. This verse is perhaps the most practical of the psalmist's pleas. And again, we must understand this. We are helpless in this matter. God must turn our eyes away from worthless things and fix them upon Himself by His grace. Finally, His Word reassures our souls. His Word reassures our souls. Verse 38. Doubt is an inevitable part of faith. There are days when we doubt God's love or His goodness or even maybe His existence. You may feel doubt that God would answer this prayer if you prayed it. But the testimony of Scripture and the hope of the psalmist is that God is faithful and He keeps His promises. He spared Noah. He gave Abraham a son. He gave Moses the words to speak. He gave David the throne. He gave Solomon wisdom. He gave Adam and all of us, Adam's children, His own son to save us from sin as He promised. That which He promises, He will do. God's faithfulness to fulfill His promises is a testimony both to His goodness and to His existence. The psalmist's rationale here in verse 38 may seem a little odd to you. Fulfill your promise to your servant that you may be feared. Why would the psalmist desire that God would be feared? Let me see if I can illustrate this for you. I am not afraid of Superman. According to the testimony of DC Comics, he possesses the ability to pound me into oblivion, nuke me with heat vision, turn me into an icicle with his breath, is faster than a speeding bullet, can see through anything but lead, possesses encyclopedic knowledge of nearly everything on earth, and can fly faster than the flash can run. And he can hear my heartbeat from miles away. If Superman existed... I would be wise to love him for his goodness, revere him for his power, and fear incurring his wrath. But I do not believe that Superman exists, and so I am none of those things. The fear that the psalmist is speaking of is a reverential awe for God and his glory. A fear that we are told in Proverbs 9.10 is the beginning of wisdom. This fear is the beginning of wisdom and a thing to be desired because it is rooted in the fundamental belief that God exists and that He is exactly who He testifies to be in this Word. The fear of the Lord demonstrates a complete faith as well as a fundamental element of belief. Those who merely love and revere God but do not fear Him believe that God is good but they don't or maybe don't want to believe that He is absolutely righteous and we are not, and that He punishes wickedness wherever it is found. Perhaps they don't want to believe that the people that they know, or maybe even they themselves, are truly wicked. Those who love and fear Him but don't revere Him struggle to believe that God is capable of accomplishing that which He wills. And those who fear and revere Him 
but don't love him, find it hard to believe that God is forgiving and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in love. But the God revealed in this word is worthy of our fear. He is absolutely righteous and we are not. His hatred for evil and wickedness means that He must punish it. It stands in direct opposition to Him and who He is. If we continue in wickedness, we are doomed to be the object of His wrath. And heat vision, ice breath, and fists that hit with the force of colliding planets would be preferable in comparison to the punishment that He will dole out. He is also worthy of our love. Because this God, even while we were lost and helpless in our wickedness, promised to send someone who would deliver us from our sin, the dominion of darkness. And then He sent His only Son, the exact representation of His being, here to earth as a man, Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ, though He had never committed a single sin, much less a capital crime, was hung on a cross to die for our sins. And there God transferred all of our sin onto His Son and poured out all of His hatred for sin and evil on His own Son instead of on us. It wasn't merely so that His righteous anger could be satisfied. It was so you and I could come to Him without fear of retribution for the wrong things that we have done. To those who believe, God graciously gives the righteousness of Christ and the right to become His children. God is worthy of our love. This God is worthy of our reverence because in His power He has broken the dominion of sin over us. He is holy and He is worthy of our worship. And He will work in the lives of His children to conform them into the image of His Son for our good and for His glory. Let's pray. Father, You are good. We love You. We revere You, Father. We fear You. You made us and You call us to Yourself. It is not something that we do. We don't earn it through perfection. We fail. But You, God, You call us to Yourself. You have made the way for us to come through Your Son, Jesus Christ. And You call us to walk in Your way. Father, we ask that You would give us that ability. Would You change us? Change who we are inside. Conform us to the image of Your Son, we pray. In Jesus' name, Amen.